Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. This episode of Tourpreneur is sponsored by Rocket Res. Rocket Res has everything a tour or attraction needs. Built for high volume, their cloud point of sale puts all your sales streams into one easy-to-use platform. Find out more at rocketres.com forward slash tourpreneur. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of Tourpreneur, the podcast where we flatten the learning curve for tour operators around the world. On today's show, we are joined by Torin and Alice of The Flying Bike in Asheville, North Carolina. I invited them both onto the show today because they were closed down for three months in lockdown. Then they reopened and I invited them on the show to share with us what it was like to operate uh, a tour business reopening after three months of lockdown. What lessons did they learn? What tips and advice have they got for all of us that hopefully we'll be reopening our businesses soon. We will be reopening. We just don't know when. So lots of really practical advice, especially around reassuring bookers, dealing with hygiene issues, sanitation. Torrent even shares about the time when he got a uh, angry voicemail from a local who wanted to know why on earth they were leading tours around Asheville. Um, then disaster hit where one of their tour guides actually contracted COVID. How did Alice and Torin deal with that? How did they cope? What did they do? And what do they wish they had done better? That's today's show of Torpreneur, episode 128. And welcome to Alice and Torin of The Flying Bike in Asheville, North Carolina. How are you? Doing great. I'm really excited to chat with you both. As uh, regular listeners know, you were episode one. And as I often say to people, without Alice, there would be no tourpreneur. And here we are on episode 128, going into our third year. We've had 100,000 downloads of the show. All down to you, Alice. No, I, I can't. You run a marvelous show. So it, all the credit goes to you. I, I really think it's amazing. Brilliant stuff. So I wanted to, to check in with you because obviously you're on episode one. And then we finally got to meet at Arrival Orlando last year. And we had a catch up there and that we were just looking, that was, you know, over a year ago. I mean, we're in, we're in January, 2021. Now there's been a lot of changes, particularly with COVID. So I know when I was talking with you, Torin, you were saying that overall um, you've had a good year and for the months you were open, you had record sales. That's right. Yeah, it was a good year. Not without its bumps. We went from 
the typical opening of our season in late February, early March, uh, with you know that coinciding with the pandemic really hitting and kind of came to a screeching halt for about three months. And late June, somewhere in there, we started just realizing that we could take tours and kind of figuring out as everyone did what what the steps would be in terms of sanitization and distancing and masks and and all of that. You've shut down, right? Lockdown, et cetera. Then you're allowed to reopen. How did you go about finding out about the sanitary steps and how did you go about giving peace of mind to, to bookers? I think the first thing we did was we reached out to a bike tour out in, I think it was Seattle, Seattle bike tours and kind of talked to them. I just started noticing, you know, people who were running tours and were posting things on their website about it. And we reached out to them right away and they were really receptive just to say what they're doing, what protocols they're doing to try and kind of both keep it safe and give customers peace of mind to know that they're being taken care of and making it very clear what your policies are without offending people, you know, because it can also get political and, <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> we, um, I, I'm a nurse as well. So that was helpful in being able to understand some of the protocols and some of the things that we definitely were going to be enforcing. We drafted a page, like a policy page, posted that on our website. Our uh, tourism board was really great about giving us materials to display um, and also just backing all of the tour companies here in town. It took a couple of weeks to get it all together um, before we like officially opened. We um, initially gave out buffs to all of our customers. But once we realized how fast <laughs> like that cost was going to really, you know, hurt long term. And I think we did that for maybe a couple months. Then everyone, it, it just got to be a known thing that if you're going out in public, you're wearing a mask. If you are at an establishment in Asheville, you're going to be wearing a mask. And we did social distancing, wearing a mask in the shop during the training. And then while riders are riding, they're obviously social distanced and outside. And so we, we make that part optional. We moved everything to the shop perimeter so that the only time customers have to come inside is if they're using the restroom so they can be completely outdoors if they want to for the waiver signing and for getting their helmets and everything. Um, we actually worked with a gin distillery or was it a rum distillery to uh, get our, our sanitization spray, which we used to use Lysol, and this has like a really nice uh, smell to it, kind of a sweet smell. And But anyways, we got that by the five-gallon bucket and spray everything down after every use and that sort of thing. And yeah, it actually worked better than what we had been doing prior just for helmets, and now we do it for the bikes and everything. But There are a couple of local companies. We have, we're a big brewery, distillery area, so... Um, that was really cool to support a local business and they were offering it really affordable prices. It took a little bit of time to like get everything in order, especially when there were shortages of things. Once we got set up, we felt really confident we could keep everyone safe. I do lean on, you know, my nurse wife because she's definitely more knowledgeable in the field and was working, you know, in a hospital at that time. And so it just, it did give me a lot of security in, in going you know, into the season, I had a lot of nerves. And in fact, I remember choking up when we took our first tour back 
you know, for a couple of reasons. I, I remember being like almost sweating, nervous going into it just because of so many things, right? The the public perception, we didn't want to come off as, well, we're just serving tourists who are coming to Asheville at the health expense of everybody in this community, you know, and then not knowing those first guests that were coming, what their expectations would be and how really to set their expectations and how safe they'd feel as we rode and, and all of that was a, a really big deal. But then the, the bigger thing, I think, was that I was just overcome with gratitude. And that stayed with me for a few months as we were leading tours. The feeling of having had our business taken away for three months. Probably most of your listeners have gone through that for much longer than we did. But what an enormous feeling of gratitude and just of, of relief and of you know joy again to be able to get back on the bikes and, and share that with people and and see it be a success it, it you know started slow but then really picked up steam and by july we were having bigger months than we had had in any prior year did you feel scared leading a tour in terms of catching covid yourself even though you were going through all the sanitary procedures was that a concern yeah i didn't know you know at the beginning like what to expect and and i think as the year progressed from July and into the, the fall months, you notice a difference in how people were approaching the business and you and all of it. And there was fewer anti-maskers, for lack of a better word, people that were, you know, having an attitude about what are you asking me to do and who didn't really, you know, approach with any caution. And so the need to prep everybody diminished a little bit and felt safer and safer the more the longer we went. And also just initially not having any knowledge of other people doing similar things and all that definitely it made you hesitate at first so you mentioned anti-maskers did you get any resistance from people who wanted to book a tour with you but weren't happy with you know for instance being told to wear a mask or any of the procedures never on the front end i think i personally saw one person that gave a little bit of pushback but there's no exceptions to be made about mask wearing when you were in closer contact. And and then too, as Alice mentioned, once you're on the bike, it was more optional. We went into the one hotel we go into, the Grove Park Inn, but we modified our uh, way through the building so that it was really minimal. And they required a mask and we told everyone that up front and people respected that. I, I think it was less than 1% of our guests gave us any trouble about it really. Yeah, I, I just asked that because I've had numerous emails from tourpreneurs, particularly around the United States, where they've had resistance from people saying, hey, I want to come on this private tour, but we're not wearing masks or we're not doing this and the other. And most tour operators have just said, well, then I'm not taking you because of you know, our own health concerns, et cetera. And I know some people have got quite nasty with tour operators over it. So I'm really pleased to hear that that wasn't the case for the flying bike. And on the contrary, we had Plenty of people wanting private tours, and it wasn't that hard to accommodate that. And so you know, people that told us up front they had immune-compromised uh, person on the tour, and you know, we, were, we were more than happy to just take them on their own and, and take all the precautions necessary to, to keep them safe. I think a large part of it for us is also just keeping our guides safe and also keeping our reputation in the community because we literally are a group of people that's very visible riding through the streets of downtown Asheville. So it's really important to us to show that we're doing things the right way, that we're 
we're not being irresponsible and that we're we care about our community in Asheville and how COVID affects us. So that was hard actually. I think that was an important lesson because I remember in the first weeks I got at least two or three calls from locals saying, What are you guys doing? I see you, you know, on these bikes and you don't have masks on. And then you're going by what you have read and the best science you've found about, you know, being on the bikes and being outside and and all that. And not, you can't expect everyone to know, but our approach has always been just to uh, address any concerns like that head on. It's not the first time we've had concerns from locals. Other times it's been about how we navigate in traffic or or whatever things. And and so those types of things are always going to come up, I think, in a tour business. And I just talk to people and, you know, I think listening really is the first step and just hearing their concerns and, and addressing them directly. And so in one case, we were standing half block away from a senior citizen's residence. And the woman said, I haven't left my apartment in however many weeks at that point. And I just empathized with her. I just, and I did, I, I understood where she was coming from to suddenly see people out on bikes. And obviously they're probably tourists. And she was surprised. She called and left an angry message. And when I called back and I just was empathetic and said, I understand. And, you know, this is what our policy is. And we're following this science and doing, doing it based on, on this. She, she really appreciated it from what I could tell on the phone. And we didn't hear any, any more from that. Well, that's a major learning for all of us there, because I'm sure the vast majority of us getting an angry voicemail would be inclined to ignore it. So the fact <laughs> you called her back and you were able to kind of disarm that, I think is a huge feather in your cap, Torin. It's a scary thing to do, and I've had to do it enough that I feel I feel pretty comfortable. I mean, as comfortable as you can be, and you yeah. never know what someone's going to say. But we went into it with our policies in place, and and we just genuinely do care about our community and. And so I think that comes across. It's not something where we're just here to make a buck and, you know, to heck with everything else. We care about Asheville and that's what drives us. It's one of our core values. And so, you know, we're always going to address those things and, and try to do better. And there will always be somebody that is upset about something we're doing, but we try to address it and try to try to be better always. And I'm really pleased that we're, we're discussing this because you're right. Many of our listeners have not opened since March. And they may get the opportunity to hopefully open up in the new year, hopefully. And listening to this episode, how you've dealt with this is one of the reasons we create the show, because, you know, you have to find this out for yourself. You're one of the first operators to kind of come back. Whereas for many of our, our listeners, they, you know, they haven't had that opportunity yet. And when they are going to come across the same issues with regards to, to you know, local sentiment, I think. You said it started off slow and then you started seeing good numbers. So when you opened up the business again, how did you tell the world that Flying Bike was open for business? Part of it was we were getting so much demand that we weren't planning on opening when we did. We were getting plenty of calls. And I think we initially, we just shut everything down. We just made everything. I don't even know if we blocked it off. We just made it all call to book. But obviously, we weren't doing any tours until maybe the, was it the end of June. We were doing some in June, yeah. So it was really once we opened up bookings, that was once we had COVID policies and everything in place and set up on our website so people could see right away, like, we're open. I think we we said something like, we're open, see our COVID-19 policies. And then it really just immediately people were booking. And yeah, I think October was double our last year's October. Wow. 
and which was great, but I, I think it also, we weren't really prepared for it because we start onboarding new staff the end of February, beginning of March. There were some people that weren't even hadn't finished training. We didn't have a full staff of guides, what like what would normally have for that capacity. During COVID, I went back to work full time at the hospital. So I was still working more than usual. So it was all challenging just in the fact that um, we finally got some guides up to speed, but the business was full on and I was working more than I was last year. And it was good, but it, I think we burnt ourselves out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like we were like, once it started to slow down, we were like, okay, we can take a breath kind of thing. We didn't have to do anything at the beginning of reopening. The way I remember it is that we just had so many calls and I was kind of fending them off while we were feeling the need to stay closed. That to me was the impetus to have the conversation about, can we do this safely and how are we going to do it? And then once we got that in place, it was like, here we go. And it was just busy. And, you know, again, I know that this isn't the case for everyone. I think Asheville is a really unique spot because 75% of our pre-COVID tourists drive here. They're coming from the surrounding states and they, they drive here and they're not having to deal with the airports and the planes. And so I think the difference is that people probably canceled other trips that they had flights for and just came to Asheville instead. I know that during the pandemic, at some point or another, I read that our hotel occupancy was at 80%. Wow. Yeah. So wow. it's pretty incredible numbers of people. And, and Labor Day and other days, I felt just from being out leading tours that I had never seen it so busy in downtown Asheville. And that, again, came with its concerns and a, and a feeling of like, you know, making sure we need, you know, we can we can manage things safely. But but Asheville's in a unique place uh, in the southeast of the states in a really driving destination. And how are things now in terms of COVID and the infection rate in, in Asheville? Uh, numbers are up uh. for sure. I mean, we personally are are being very careful. I do have a friend who's a physician assistant in urgent care, and she got the vaccine yesterday, which is promising. But, you know, I, I think our business, I mean, just from the weather slowed down, um, it's kind of good timing because, you know, I think it's going to be, especially with the holidays and everything, you know, everyone's, well, a lot of people are doing things differently this year, but I think it's, um, the numbers are going to continue to climb. So I did want to mention that we had a guide who got tested positive. Actually, I talked with a lot of people at the arrival 360 event about it and saw from those conversations that there were some, some really valuable lessons. And it's not an easy thing to talk about because again, uh, you want people to trust that you're doing the best thing. The outcome, the end uh, result was that he got better. He was an older guy. He was 65. So that was definitely a concern from all of our best guesses. You know, he, he got it from his family while traveling and came back and wasn't feeling symptomatic until literally on a tour. He felt kind of the symptoms kick in. And then the big lesson was for us, I think, that we should have acted faster. And again, this isn't that comfortable to share, but it was a lesson learned. He told us he had a sniffle and thought it was nothing. He was confident, very confident in that, and that he was getting tested. And he got a three-day test instead of a rapid 24-hour test. And so he didn't come back. He left 
that day and stayed home. And we all agreed that that was our you know best move and the policy. And we changed up a few guides so that they could take over some of his tours. But the day he was there, he interacted with four other people, staff members. Which I don't think we realized right off. The yeah, it wasn't really clear right away. We weren't, you know, as aggressive as possible, really. And he had a mask. Our staff members had masks and everybody's been taking care to be apart from each other. But still, you don't know and you feel like, OK, now we've had an exposure. And, you know, by the time we found out that his test was positive three days later, it just shut us down. We were like, OK, those other four people need to get tested before we can know, you know, because essentially through that, everybody was kind of in contact with somebody. And so if we had shut everything down that day and those other four people and waited for their tests, everything would have been fine. And gotten a, a rapid test. And it, yeah, and if we could have done rapid testing. And then the other big lesson was something I just didn't even know or wasn't aware of, which is that there's a four-day incubation period. So as soon as we found out he was positive, I was like on day three of having had contact with someone who had been in contact with him. And I was rushing off to the hospital to get my rapid test. And Alice called me back and said, you're not even in that period yet. You have to wait another day. This was in October. It was our busiest month ever. So we have, you know, six person, eight person tours that are booked. And we're trying to figure out who can lead those tours. Fortunately, some of our guides were awesome and they went out and got their rapid test. And, and we, we didn't cancel more than one or two tours, which was amazing. And then in the end, uh, we followed up, of course, with our guests and, and with, with everybody and nobody else was tested positive. So I think because there were four, four guests that were exposed to this guy when he was positive. And so, you know, thankfully, the precautions that we had in place seemed to have worked. You never can be careful enough is really the lesson that we learned and, and, and aggressive enough from the start. And that incubation period really throws a wrench in things. If you're wanting to get somebody tested and back out in the field and working, you, you have to wait and take all, of, all the necessary precautions. Because if it had spread, you know, it would have shut us down for weeks. What's your biggest takeaway for other tour operators who are listening to this and hopefully opening next year? I mean, what, what do you wish you had done straight away? I wish we had, first of all, taken his sniffle as an automatic symptom of COVID and said, I'm glad you're not feeling any worse right now, but let's, let's get you tested and we're, we're going to quarantine everybody that was with you. And they can either stay away for a couple of weeks or get tested right away. He had been out like in the cold and so he thought it was just from being in the cold or, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the allergies, but yeah, any little symptom at all. I think the other thing is just to plan for that. It's going to happen as more operators start to to open their doors. You know, I just heard a statistic that only 40% of North Carolinians are willing to get vaccinated. So, you know, as people start to have more confidence because there's a vaccine out there, it doesn't mean that the disease will be gone. And, and so as tour operators open up, they're going to have cases and they have to have a plan in place that's aggressive from the from the very first. And and you just have to imagine, go through in your mind, like the worst case scenario. For us, it could have meant thousands of dollars of, of lost revenue. Um, one of the big worries that we had too was just that our guides depend on our, our business for income. And, and we had to push everybody else back. We started to get some pushback from the other guides who said, 
you know, I never even worked with that person. And, you know, and at that point we had already been not aggressive enough initially. So we were not going to, not going to take anything off the table in terms of that, that point. How did you manage that dealing with that conflict from the guides who wanted to carry on working? That was really hard too. We had a lot of different reactions. We had some people that stepped up right away and were like, I'm on my way to get a 24 hour test. And once I'm you know cleared, then I'm happy to fill in and do, do tours. We had other people that were afraid of the testing sites and of testing in general and pushed back. And so we really had a mixed result. And it was stuff that I think for me as a manager of, of staff was by far the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with. Because at the same time, you're checking in constantly with the guy who is sick, who you're worried about, who's got, you know, day by day worsening symptoms. And we did end up with our largest staff ever this year. So we had 11 people on staff, which is, you know, I think more than double what we've ever had before. I spent days at a time just, you know, just texting everybody and communicating constantly with everybody. How are you doing? What's going on? Where's your test result? You know, at all of that to the point that I did, I stopped taking some of our calls from customers because I just couldn't keep up with the volume and I didn't know what I was going to have to tell them until I had some better clarity. And that was for a week that that lasted. And by the end of that week, I was burnt out. Yeah, I can imagine. Because you're you're reliant on your staff member telling you or telling us, hey, I have a sniffle. Because there could be some guys like, oh, if I tell them that, I'm going to be laid off. I'm not going to work. So I'm not going to say anything. And you really hope that people are not that selfish. But I can see that happening. Definitely. I mean, I I give all the credit in the world to the people that we do have on our team because they're they're honest and they embody our core values of care and community. And so, yeah, that could be a big problem if you had somebody who is sick. But you also have a lot of people that are asymptomatic and have it. So you could not even have a sniffle and and still have, have it spread. Very true. But I, I would think when saying what advice would we give or what would we have done differently, I think definitely having clear policies for the staff and kind of the protocol. So if this happens, we have to get a rapid test or we have to, you know, do this, that, the other. Or if you do have a symptom, you're not allowed to come back for this many days and just think through all of those different scenarios. So staff, they're not questioning it in the middle of, of the crisis, but they kind of know what to expect ahead of time. And we also offered to pay for everyone's COVID test. And that was, I think, the least we could do. We also tried to do some things where we offered some at-home work when we needed it. So we don't have a lot of that. Most of our guides are just hired as guides, but there were some opportunities to do some tour design or some other things that we tried to shift. But ultimately, it wasn't much more than a week and a half, I think, or a week that people were out of their usual shifts. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors, and then we'll get right back to today's show. Stay tuned. Are you tired of using six different software applications to run your operation? Rocket Res, the all-in-one system for tours and attractions, combines the ease of online booking with all those other tools you wish you had to run your operation. Have retail? Use their built-in retail point of sale. Want to market to your customers? Use their built-in CRM. Offering private events? No problem. Send digital contracts right out of Rocket Res. 
For Tourpreneur listeners, for a limited time, you can sign up for a demo in the next 30 days and Rocket Res will waive all setup fees. Visit rocketres.com forward slash tourpreneur for more details. And now back to today's episode of Tourpreneur. And the bookings you were getting at this time, it sounds like most of it was direct rather than through third parties. Yeah. Mostly, yeah. We um we didn't have a whole lot of, you know, Viator and all of that in general. I think Viator and um third party affiliates, it's about ten to fifteen percent. We we do mostly direct bookings, but yeah, they they must have shut everything down at some point. I don't know if they were even available for part of that. Yeah, I'm just curious because they'd stopped ad spend, you know, on Google during COVID. And I'm just curious because, you know, when we first spoke in, in episode one, you were building the website, you were learning about direct. And now it sounds like you're totally crushing it with direct business, you know, two years on. Yeah, well, I mean, we... um been really strong with that. We were kind of late to the to the third party game. I think maybe a couple years in, we signed up with Viator, and we're still actually not on Airbnb experiences. That's on our to do list. But <laughs> we've been too busy to kind of handle the fact that they don't integrate. I think we finally this year got our the Viator bookings integrated. Yeah, <laughs> it took a long time communicating with them to sort that out. But um, yeah, I am thankful that most of our bookings are direct. Yeah. Good for business, for sure. Definitely. Oh, yeah. More money in, in your company's bank account than being paid out elsewhere. And more control, um, you know, just being able to have customers' information and be able to communicate with them directly. Is- yeah, that's, that's what I like is that we just, especially a year when there's a pandemic, you have so many things you might need to communicate to a customer. And so having their email and their phone, you know, and, and really... Being the owner of that information, so to speak, is so much better than than having someone else uh, that you have to go through their messaging system. And you know, they sometimes I've tried to just communicate something very directly on TripAdvisor or Viator's platform, and they delete it because you can't give a phone number over their message or whatever. And so I've learned that lesson. But yeah, I think the volume went up, but it just kind of stayed percentage wise similar to what we've had in the past. And we're happy with that. So I wanted to to chat about some of the other moving away from COVID, but some of the other changes to your business in 2020. So I understand a, a big development was you've got into bike sales. So getting, yeah. we're getting right. into, bike sales. sorry, I gave you the wrong impression, but yeah, we are right on the cusp of becoming a pedago dealer. So these are the bikes that we've used since our first uh, fleet, really. Um, when we bought the business, it was a different fleet. And then we moved to Pedago. We've loved these bikes. Uh, we've learned some lessons there, too. And I, again, had some great conversations at Arrival this year with virtually, obviously, with people about um, turning over bike fleets. And really, we wish we had turned our fleet over each year, which, which is our plan going forward. This year was crazy for, for bike tour operators because... Bikes around the world are sold out. Yes. Uh, it's just impossible. We had a one uh, dealer who had been trying to sell me his bikes for two years. And we went all the way through this credit approval process. I think Alice and I spent a whole day on this very lengthy process. And then, you know, continuing the phone conversations. And we had cash. We wanted to buy the bikes. And then they said, uh, we can't do that. Our legal and our financial heads it was a big company they they didn't meet and it was a very strange thing and threw a wrench in our plans actually because we had 
our eyes on these different bikes that were going to allow us to take more countryside tours. And we thought we'd be getting those in October when we still had a lot of business. And then we had to pivot. And so we took a, a day trip to Richmond to try some other bikes out and met another really great tour operator up there for cool bikes cool and wheels. cool wheels. Thank you. She was super gracious, 12 hours of driving for like two hours of testing out some bikes and nice to meet another operator, but we ultimately didn't go with those and finally came back around to Pedago. And, and uh, we're excited because people love these bikes and they've asked us to sell them to them for the entire time that we've been riding and we've wow. never done it. We yeah. always focus on our tours and that's really where the heart of our business is. But this is going to be a huge change for us. And I think a really, a really positive one. We just finished sending out an email to our entire email list and we've already gotten, I think, 28 respondents of people interested in either our existing fleet, which we plan to sell off right now, or the new bikes as we start to sell those. And so that'll more than clear out our fleet, hopefully, if if half of those people buy one. And then we'll have nice, shiny new bikes and we'll be able to sell them when people get off, off of their tour if they want one. We'll also have a different style, which will allow us to kind of do the countryside tours as well. So it kind of, yeah, it's a win-win, I think. And do you plan on having some of the bikes or your stock in the shop so someone finishes the tour, they're interested in it, and they, you can go and do the sales part right after that? Yeah, absolutely. We have a small shop and we spent a lot of time and effort this year really kind of fixing it up. It's a very old building and we just beautified it and organized it. And now we have a wall that we can put four to six bikes up that we can we can show off. But we're also really excited that we're getting into concession sales next year. So we've kind of opened a, a window and literal window in our front wall to to sell. And we're looking at selling beer and snacks, popcorn, ice cream kinds of things, only after the ride, for the beer at least. Yes. Uh, but uh, we have a good friend who's a, a brewer in the area, and he's offered to make us a custom beer. And we're excited about just kind of getting those marginal sales up and, and uh, having a gathering place for when gathering can happen again. Again, our core value to have community, and we want people to come to our space and see it as a place for bicycle advocacy and social justice advocacy and Obviously, food and snacks and beer go hand in hand with having people gather. The outdoor space is where we really expanded so that, you know, is also COVID safe. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You guys have come on so much in the two years since we first spoke. <laughs> it's been a learning curve. So. A lot of learning and yeah. um, busy, busy. When's the book coming out? You need to write a book on this. <laughs> That's next. Wait for your book. <laughs> You know, you're not the first person to say that to me. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. You know. Actually, one other thing is I, d- I did um, put in my notice back in October. So I'm not at the hospital anymore just to have more time, more time on the business. So our plan is to travel nurse on our off seasons going forward. What does that mean? During our off season, we would kind of close things down or leave someone in charge for just the the trickling of tours and um, travel as a family. We have two little kids and you, it's usually three month contracts. So I'm in labor and delivery. So you go work in a hospital somewhere else. We were looking at California and Hawaii, Southwest, Colorado, somewhere fun, travel as a family for a few months. It's a way for me to kind of keep, yeah. keep that up without 
having it always be a, a strain when I'm we're also really busy. So basically, she's come over to being a full time tourpreneur. <laughs> full time tourpreneur <laughs> for at least nine months of the year. Yeah, that's the that's the plan. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge decision for you to take, right? Because obviously that's a steady income coming in. So during the quiet months, you know, you can rely on that. And in fact, there are a lot of our listeners who said to me that if it wasn't for their spouse's income right now, they'd be in serious financial trouble with them not being able to lead tours. How did you come to that decision then to say, okay, that's a big decision to say, I'll go full time and leave, you know, not get that income? Honestly, it was Las Vegas arrival conference when we were out there that it was the first time we had really traveled out West that I started thinking about it. I was like, we've done a lot of travel abroad, but we haven't really done a lot of travel within the States. And it's like, what, what's a way that we could still travel owning a business? Like, you know, you can't get away very often. So Asheville is a very um, notorious for very low pay everywhere. So it's like, I could make double in those three months and then we could travel and then, you know, it just, it made sense with what our life is as seasonal business owners to, you know, take advantage of that weird time structure that, that we can kind of piece together. So we were thinking about it then, and then I almost did it last year. And then I I was really grateful during COVID, of course, to have that. I mean, we would have made it somehow, but it would have been even more stressful had I not had that um, income and stability through the complete shutdown. And it really came out of, I can't do this anymore, to be honest. Nursing is a really demanding job. Every weekend that I'm required to work, Torin would be trying to juggle childcare. There's you know an emergency at the business. He has got to find stuff for the kids. So it's not a flexible. And so after October, it kind of came to the point where like, I don't have a choice. We need to have some balance in our, in our life. Yeah. It just kind of came to the point where like, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and you know, we're just going to have to make this work because I can't do it any other way. Yeah. Well, I might be coming back to you in 12 months time, talk about what it's like to run a business as husband and wife. Cause I'm sure that, you know, there's going to be a lot of lessons there. I mean, working together full time, living together, that, that could lead to some stress. (laughs) I mean, it's already, it's felt like that, like where we're running it together, but at the same time, I've had like kind of weight around my ankles. So just to, to feel more committed, um, to the business in that way and feel like we are, you know, a team and having that energy in that time, you know, Torin is, you know, he's more of the risk taker. He's more of the entrepreneurial spirit and I like stability and so he's always said, you're not working at the hospital. You put that time into the business. It's going to pay off. And so that's just what I'm counting on. <laughs> yeah. And I love the idea of you traveling for three months. And, you know, I think all of us as entrepreneurs recognize we're not going to become multimillionaires through, through our businesses, but it's either the passion or the lifestyle. It's why we do what we do. So I'm, I'm very inspired by you that you're going to go travel for three months. Disappointed not to hear Vermont in that long list of states there, but, uh, Oh, I would love actually that could totally be on our list. I mean, it's in the winter months, so oh no, 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 it's major snow up there. But I, yeah, I could do that through Vermont on the Appalachian Trail. 
way back. So I've seen your photos. You scared me because you held up a picture of a serpent. There was this big, massive snake that you saw. <laughs> I have a total fear I think of snakes. It was a garter snake. <laughs> yeah, they're enough. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I can't stand them. <laughs> yeah, Vermont is beautiful. Well, it's minus two Fahrenheit today, so just teasing. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, if I may, just to change tracks to talk about social advocacy, something that I know is, is close to both of your hearts. I understand that you set up a collaboration with Hood Tours. Yeah, so the owner of Hood Tours here in Asheville is Dwayne Barton, and he and I go way back. Uh, in 2008, we started a nonprofit called Green Opportunities, along with another co-founder of Dwayne's. I was just kind of along after those guys were. And, and the three of us started started this nonprofit that was really giving Black youth training in green jobs, which by that we meant jobs that were beneficial to the environment. It was a six-year experience for me starting that nonprofit. We grew, you know, Similar to anybody's entrepreneurial journey, growing something from the ground up, it's it's a, a wild ride. I learned so much in that time, not just you know about growing an organization, but about um, specific things in terms of inequities in in Asheville that started with a lot of just the history of Asheville, which is not unique to Asheville. It's it's something that uh, is is everywhere, but redlining and and public housing and urban renewal and all of these things that that really marginalized the black community in Asheville specifically. Coincidentally, Dwayne and I, after we left that organization, both ended up as tourpreneurs and he did it first. And, you know, episode one, you can hear how we fell into that, but it's been really cool because we've, we've maintained our friendship and now we're doing collaborative tours. His tours are typically walking or on a bus this year, he stopped the bus and just did walking, but more often, I guess he does the bus tours. And he is a spoken word poet, a sculptor, a musician, just a, an incredibly dynamic person. And I saw this part of his personality back in the nonprofit days, but he honestly is, is one of the most inspiring tour guides and tour operators that I've ever met. So it was just a joy to, to get to collaborate and Basically, we had a request to do a joint tour from the local university as part of an orientation for their incoming freshmen. And the university approached me and I said, I'll talk to Duane and see what we can do. And at that time, he said he was still in kind of uh, shutdown mode and hibernation. And I said, well, here's how we can, you know, maybe do this safely and we'll keep keep you distant, keep everyone distant. And we're going to ride up to this historical black landmark uh, school. And uh, you'll share some things and then we'll ride off. My favorite thing that happened just with the physical aspect of the tour is that uh, we have a cargo bike that can sit a passenger on the back. And eventually we realized there was more, so much more that we wanted him to share. And so I threw him on the back of my bike and rode like a quarter mile to the next stop. And it was just kind of a, a light hearted, very fun thing that we did. But the content of those tours is really powerful. We learned to prep our our guests with what they should expect and to ask them to be ready to hear some hard things and to to interact, not to just come expecting to be lectured at and spoken to, but to look forward in terms of once you hear the history, how are we going to make some changes? It's 
definitely the start of something and, and something we've always wanted to do is something we built into our core values. This year just really took it to a new level and we started designing our own African-American history tour. We have African-American guides on staff and people that I also collaborated with at the nonprofit that ended up becoming employees. And so it's something that is just really important to us and has sort of taken on a life of its own. The first group that we did led to a word of mouth request from another group that led to two more and so on. And I think we did six or seven in, in the year. The feedback we got was just really powerful, more than more than the good feedback you get from a normal tour that we've done. I think we've done a great job. You know, we have some awesome reviews, but this was mostly locals coming on our on our rides. Wow. And people that had no idea the things that happened to the black community here and are so interested in finding a way to be engaged and to kind of take what they learned forward. We're still working on that piece. And so Dwayne and I are talking about how we're going to have a link on our websites. I think he's actually switching over to to Fair Harbor. And so we're going to link to each other's websites, but collaborate and just kind of have a set tour dates. And we're talking about having funding up front, either just asking people to donate so that it's not just people with a lot of money that can come on the rides, but everybody who wants to would have access to those tours so that we can subsidize some of that cost. It's been really powerful. And with the improvements we've made to our space and the assumption that eventually we're going to get past this pandemic, it's the kind of thing that we want to you know, have food and drink at our space and gather and, and talk about these things and get deeper into the history and what's going on in our community. Let me ask you, how does Duane make it comfortable for the guests to ask questions? Because I, you know, as a white guy myself, I, I watch every single word I use because I'm terrified of causing offense. And it was quite funny over the weekend. I checked two very good friends of mine. One guy is from Jamaica, the other guy is from India. And we discussed this and they were like, Shane, it's not the label, just the way you say words. Not me, but the, the population, the way they say words. Because I was kind of like not wanting to call him black or whatever it may be. And I imagine there's a lot of that on a tour where people are concerned about using the wrong word or to ask a silly question. How does he overcome that? I don't know that he does, to be honest. I think he is very direct. He'll ask a question. For example, he asks, you know, how was it that uh, during Jim Crow segregation, when his his own mother couldn't walk down certain streets for fear of being stoned, how the black community in Asheville was doing so much better than they are now, based on the statistics that he shares across the board of, of different financial and education and all kinds of statistics. And people sit there dumbfounded for a good amount of time when he asks that question. Yeah, And I think it's a combination of what you just described. White people specifically are really afraid to answer those questions and say the wrong thing. And also there's just an enormous amount of ignorance around what's going on. And I think that that inability to answer is, and that, that space that gets really awkward for, for a time is an okay space to have. It's a different kind of space than we usually have on our tours, but it's one that can be fertile ground for personal growth and for sort of a desire to learn. Dwayne's approach is really direct. And in designing our own tour, we're, we're using some techniques from drama therapy to create what's called a magic circle um, and to 
really get people to step out of their comfort zone in less charged ways at the beginning of the tour so that they're more ready to step out of that comfort zone you know, when we're really into the meat of what we want to share and to discuss and to communicate about. And it's it's all a learning process. But so far, what I'm seeing is that people's response is people are resilient even to feeling challenged and to feeling uncomfortable. And so you have to give people credit for their ability to take those moments, those hard moments, and then bounce back and still come up later and say, that was amazing. This was what I want to do going forward. These are the, the ways that I want to see our community change, even though they might have been <laughs> really worried or uncomfortable in that moment. One of the things that that working with, with Hood Tours and adding that piece in this year, really in collaborating with our own staff to design our own Black History Tour of Asheville, is just really one small piece of what we what we see as kind of the the need. And I think that Tour operators really have this huge platform that is, I think, underutilized. Collectively, we do, but but also individually as businesses in our different areas. And there's so many things that we can do as businesses to make a difference. We try to do several of those things through hiring, through promotion of staff, through advertising and yeah, representation in, in that aspect and making sure people who come to us from different backgrounds and different races and anywhere is feel feel welcome another big one is storytelling and i think you know storytelling is is so at the heart of the tour guide's job and uh, it's so easy for me to see that the stories in Asheville have been whitewashed over and over and over again and so it's for me a responsibility to really change that and i think that the responsibility is not just on our shoulders i don't feel that as a heavy weight for for our own business per se it's something that as white tour operators, we need to be aware of and we need to push on. But I think collectively is where we can really have some power. And I mean that on a local level, we have, you know, Explore Asheville that puts tens of millions of dollars into marketing Asheville. And so we can have conversations directly with them about what uh, expectations are you setting for tourists who come to Asheville? What are, what are they expecting to see when they get here? So that the individual tour operators can actually fulfill perhaps a new type of expectation. I think that collectively as operators, and I've been in some interesting conversations on the Tourpreneur Facebook page, but um, I think we do have not only a responsibility, but a really huge opportunity to to tell different stories, to make sure we're we're hiring people and welcoming people in different ways, and then to build that coalition of those of us who, who care about these things to to really make change. I think it'd be a great idea if, if you're open to it, Torin, in the new year, maybe inviting Dwayne on via Zoom uh, onto the podcast and maybe you interview Dwayne because you guys go back quite some time. That, that, I would really love to listen to that. I don't know about my interview skills, but I would love to. Um, as I said, he's a great friend and just a powerful person to talk to. Exactly. You're, you're curious, you know him. I think a lot of us would love to hear that conversation. It doesn't have to be you know, a meet the press style interview. It's just an engaging, authentic conversation about what you've experienced on the tour, for instance, and what's he's experienced being a, a black tourpreneur. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Brilliant. So as we wrap up here, there's a question I want to ask you. You, you. You've both been through a lot this year. How are you protecting your mental health? How are you staying sane through all of this? Yeah, that's been a challenge for sure. For me, what, what was, I think, harder 
was that usually I have this this vibrant community of tourpreneurs. Um, I still do, and I you know I love your Facebook page for that. But I dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt. I think is the word I would put on it, just because suddenly it felt like nobody else was doing this kind of like business that you know was was a growing, but in a really tough time and. I didn't know who to talk to as much and to ask questions of and to like, you can't commiserate with someone who lost their entire business for the year about how do you handle a COVID outbreak in your business when you're in the middle of your best month. I mean, my heart really does hurt for all of, all of the industry. And so it's been hard. And there were moments when I think it was pushing our limits. Alice finally, you know, taking the step of being kind of, off of one full-time job because please don't misunderstand. She's always had this as a full-time job. It's just that she had homeschooling our kids and being a nurse as two more full-time jobs on top of it. So I think just that added breathing room was huge in terms of our mental health. You know, I'll just say we've had a, a therapist that we've gone to for a decade and that's something we've just always done as a couple we're actually, you know, a happy couple, but but it's been preventative in a lot of ways. And it it's so helpful when things do get really stressful. And, you know, I think the more stress you're under, the harder it is to to see eye to eye and to figure things out. And so so just going to see a therapist has been huge. Yeah. And I think kind of like what Warren touched on, I mean, just quitting that other job and COVID in general, just I think a lot of people found this, you spending so much more time at home and so I think it's forced us to prioritize a lot of things at home and find some balance, you know, find things that that are enjoyable. And we were playing music together and, you know, different things that we've never really made time for before. So that's been really fun. I'll say one other thing that was huge for this season is we hired someone temporarily to be a manager. They were helping us with a lot of the shop improvements. And just being a, a second person to rely on someone that had been working with us for a couple of years, that really, we kind of realized how essential that role is. Because part of what we were doing was a lot more walk-ups. We were getting a lot more last-minute bookings. You know, it was just one extra person to handle, you know, last-minute things or emergencies that come up, that kind of thing. Just especially since we finally slowed down this December, just finding balance, like finding balance in our family, personally, you know, in the business. And so we're, we're kind of taking a little bit of a self-imposed break right now, at the same time, preparing for some really big things that are happening next year. But we need to get that energy from somewhere. So and we also have a business coach, which we've sometimes referred to lightly as our business therapist too. And so She's a, a wonderful woman that's been working with us for, well, with me on different business ideas and things for years, actually, and has just walked us through some some really tough, tough moments. And again, whenever it's affordable to do so, having that kind of person to consult with who you trust, and especially um, that we both equally trust and can go in feeling like we have a difference of opinion on some important aspect of the business and then come out feeling like we, you know, might even be a, a third way to go, but we have a, a consensus on how we're moving forward is, is huge. Wow. You guys, uh, lots of advice for us there. 
things that we can do to protect our mental health? Because I know I speak to a lot of tour operators who are, who are really struggling. And they're struggling because they're not leading tours. And let's be honest, what we love doing is leading tours. The, the, the business side of it is, is not everyone's favorite thing to do. So I love the fact you've got a business coach, for instance, because you know, I hear this a lot with operators who are not looking at bottom line, not looking at profits. But hey, you know, I led 10 tours this week, but the business is in a bad way. So getting that help is, is really important and, and acknowledging that you know, we need that help. And also on on the survivor guilt, I mean, I, I understand it. I know we spoke a few months ago about this and I'm like, no, no, I want you to come on and share that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And yes, in Asheville, you were able to lead tours, whereas in other places like New York and DC, they couldn't. But one thing I've learned about the vast majority of tour operators is we want to help each other. We want to support each other. And unlike most industries I've ever worked in, we love it when someone else in our industry is successful. So, you know, I, I wouldn't worry so much about the, the survivors. Uh, guilt on that. I think we just want to hear. And like, you've got so much to share in terms of you've had to cope with a tour guide who contracted COVID, you know, our operators that are listening to you today, should that ever happen to them? And I hope it doesn't, they'll know how to react because you've shared that information today because you were were having some success. Your encouragement when we did have that conversation was huge for me. It, it made a shift in my mental health, to be honest, to be able to look at it from your perspective, uh, because you're in contact with so many tourpreneurs, right? And so that definitely made me feel heartened that, yeah, I can, I can talk about this stuff and, and people will understand that, that my heart goes out to them, you know, and at the same time, I do hope that the lessons that we learned help as we go forward, as others go forward. And, and I will say that those three months that we were closed were three of the hardest months that I've been through and definitely as a business owner. And so I do relate on some level to to what people have gone through and didn't feel ready to make some of the pivots that people were making. And so I, I sympathize with that too. We looked at some things and it was like, that's not what my heart you know, wants to do. We talked about using our bikes to deliver food and there's some pop-up delivery companies that have done great business. And maybe if things had gone on longer, we would have we would have found a different pivot. But thank goodness we were able to open back up. But I get where other operators might just be like, you know, ready to just shut down until they can do the thing that they're so passionate about and so good at. But I'm grateful for people like you and also, you know, Teresa Nemitz up at Milwaukee, who's had tremendous success with food boxes and gift boxes. And I did smile when we released her episode, uh, where she talked about selling a thousand food boxes in a weekend. And somebody wrote, as a comment on our Facebook group saying, hey, that looks like way too much work. And I'm like, good. Good. I want you to see how much work Teresa has yeah. put into how much effort it takes for a thousand food boxes together. Cause it's not like, Oh yeah, I, I'll do that. I'll jump into that. And then suddenly it's like, wow, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm drowning. So I'm really pleased when entrepreneurs look, hear that story. And that's one of their reactions because nobody should go into this under those false apprehensions. It's going to be easy. Well, that's the thing I, I was going to say is I've been so impressed with some of the entrepreneurs that are able to just reinvent or recreate their tour to you know be virtual or to be something different i mean that that to me that idea was very overwhelming yes Um, and so i've been really impressed we've been working one on one tour for like two years we still haven't launched so i you know being able to flip something like that on a dime and i'm sure like put in so much work not even knowing if it was going to turn out or not at the end. Like I've been really impressed and amazed at 
what people in our industry have been doing. Well, maybe that will be the entrepreneur book in the future. We have a book of pivots, you know, because I think it's just fascinating how so many of our listeners in the community have pivoted to get through this. But I've taken up way too much of your time. I, as always, love chatting to you both. And I am very grateful for all the advice you've shared based on your wisdom and also your experience out there. You've helped a lot of tour operators by sharing that with us today. And I'll just say, I, if anyone does, you know, going forward, if they're reopening, I'd, you know, if they want to reach out to us by email or something, that was huge to be able to talk to another um, operator that and get able to answer questions directly and get, get answers and ideas. Um, that was, that was really helpful. Actually, is there an association or any network for e-bike tour operators? Not one that I know of. We've, you know, created our network through arrival and have a few friends, but uh, I would love there to be one actually. So I wonder, and I know you've got a lot on your plate, so ignore this, but you know, it could be worthwhile setting up a Facebook group just for e-bike tour operators around the world. And, and a bit like we have with the tourpreneur group and, and Greg has for the water sports tour operators, maybe something that's just e-bike related. Or even bike tours. Yeah. I think yeah. Yeah. There's, so many, there's so many things really to like. learn from each other. Definitely um, something something yeah. to think about. Um, <laughs> where can people find out more about the Flying Bike online? So flyingbiketours.com. They can, you know, all, all of our information. We've got a video going on now. And soon our bike sales will be up there as well. Well, I tried to buy a bike this summer and I couldn't get one for love and money. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll have to take a look at that. I've never ridden an e-bike before. It'll be a new experience for me. Uh, well, I think we, I think we invited you down to Asheville, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, you did. And then this horrible thing called COVID got in the way and disrupted <laughs> all our travel plans this year. But we're definitely coming. Don't you worry okay. about it. Don't well, you we have a it. place for you to stay now. So we have a little apartment. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And are you selling that through Airbnb? Yeah, uh, it's not listed yet, but it will be. Wow. But you can just contact us directly. We'll you guys that. have so much on your plate. Amazing. <laughs> and you're homeschooling your kids. Yeah, I mean, everyone is. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess we're, we're official homeschoolers. We right. school from the start. But yeah, it's, we're not bored over here. <laughs> no, I could tell. Wow. And there's me just, you know, with the two dogs and just, you know, I don't know how you fit it all in. Some days I can't fit what I've got to do in, but compared <laughs> to you guys, maybe we need to get you on to give us a lecture on productivity and time management. Not us. Terrible that. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous. Well, thank you very much for coming on to episode 128 of Torpreneur. Thank you. Thank you really so much, Shane. It. It's good to see you and talk to you. Yeah, and I look forward to having a beer with you again soon. Absolutely. Love that. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.